0: Hey, welcome to Renaissance. My name's Clay. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you, please come on up afterwards and say hi. I'd love to get to know you just a little bit. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and I just love Advent, this season of preparation for Christmas where we join with uh, followers of Jesus all over the world and uh, prepare our hearts spiritually for Jesus' birth on Christmas Eve. And let me ask uh, Margo and Bob, they're going to come on up, and they're going to light the fourth Advent candle, which is the angel's candle. Uh, We use an Advent wreath here if you're new to Renaissance. We use this Advent wreath with five different candles on it, each of them uh, representing something different to just, you know, remind us each week uh, as we prepare our hearts for Jesus coming and the uh, fourth candle is the third purple candle There had been uh, two purples and a pink already the purple candle reminds us of Jesus royalty It reminds us of his divinity uh, And the, the fact that is the angels candle is just focusing on That the angels announce Jesus coming that the king of kings and lord of lords is entering into the world to save us, to reconcile us to God. And it's just a time, again, where we can slow down, we can stop, we can focus, prepare our hearts for Jesus' coming at Christmas. So I just want to take a minute, pray for us, and uh, then I've got uh, a message that I want to share with you guys from uh, what I, a passage that is really meaningful to me uh, in the Bible. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this season of Advent, for this time where we can... Take time out in the midst of our busy schedules and prepare our hearts for Christmas. Thank you for uh, the angels who announced Jesus' birth, the fact that the King of Kings, that the Lord of Lords, that the Savior of the world uh, was coming into the world. And I pray that you would help us with all that we're doing in these last few days before Christmas. Help us to stop, help us to take time, help us to reflect, help us to focus on you. And we pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts to increase our love for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, so this past uh, week or so, these last couple of weeks, were actually a fairly momentous occasion uh, in the life of our country. It was the 50th anniversary of what is probably, or at least arguably, the greatest uh, television Christmas special of all time, perhaps some people would say even the greatest TV show of all time. It was the 50th anniversary of A Charlie Brown Christmas. And you can't tell by my hyperbole there, I love that TV show. And I was reading uh, an article, I ran across an article, I think it was in USA Today this past week, that said that that uh, TV show, which first aired on December 9th of 1965, that A Charlie Brown Christmas almost didn't air 50 years ago. And what had happened was the executives at CBS, in their infinite wisdom, decided that there were two serious problems with the show when they heard about and probably saw some of the early clips of it. One, they felt that the music, jazz music by uh, the Vince Giraldi trio, they thought that was too sophisticated for the television audience. And I don't know what that says to those of us who were alive at that time, but they thought the music was too sophisticated for us. Uh, And they were also concerned because about two-thirds of the way through the show, the character Linus gets up and he recites from the King James Bible a section of the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 and they felt that that was too religious for their audience. Now, interestingly, today I don't know that that would have ever happened that they, you know, I don't know that they could have made a Charlie Brown Christmas today given the religious overtones, but back then, it was a little bit a little bit edgy but not as much as it would have been today. And what's interesting is that first time it was shown on December 9th, roughly half of the United States watched that. And it has become the most popular Christmas show uh, that has ever been seen in the United States. And so that tells you what the CBS executives knew at that point. But uh, from my perspective, the high point of that TV show was when Linus recites the Christmas story. And what had happened leading up to that is there was all, uh, all these things going on. Charlie Brown was getting more and more discouraged more and more fed up, more and more depressed with the commercialization of Christmas. And he felt like he had lost the true meaning of Christmas. And he cries out and he says, isn't there anyone who can tell me the true meaning of Christmas? And Linus, you know, with his thumb in his mouth and his blanket over his shoulder says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you the true meaning of Christmas. And he walks up on stage and he recites part of the Christmas story from Luke chapter two in the King James Bible. And afterwards, he walks off the stage and he looks at Charlie Brown and he says, Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about. And I love it that that, uh, he was able to recite that and share with Charlie Brown and help him to focus in the midst of all the commercialization, help him to focus on Jesus. So that's why that's uh, one of my favorite Christmas shows. My other favorite, and it goes back and forth as to which of the two I prefer more, my other favorite TV Christmas show is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Not the Jim Carrey version. I'm talking about the original, the real one. You know, the cartoon version where you've got Boris Karloff narrating the whole thing. And The Grinch starts off, and he doesn't want Christmas to come, so he says, I've got to stop Christmas from coming. And he dresses up his little dog, Max, who is the best character in any TV show ever, dresses him up kind of like a little reindeer, and he pulls this. Anyway, I won't tell you the whole story, but by the end of the story, the Grinch has had a change of heart, and he carves the roast beast for the Who's down in Whoville, and it's just a great story. It takes about 30 minutes. You got to watch it if you've never seen it. I actually found out it's on YouTube. You can take a look at it tonight if you've never seen it before, but I want to ask you a question. I want to use these two Christmas stories kind of as a diagnostic for where we are right now as we're preparing for Christmas. So on a scale of the Grinch who wanted to stop Christmas from coming versus on the other end, the Grinch who was so excited about Christmas that he carved the roast beast, where would you find yourself on that scale? Grumpy Grinch or joyful Grinch. Where are you today on that? Don't raise your hands. You don't have to tell anybody except your you know, person sitting next to you if you want to. But where are you on that scale? Second scale, on the scale of Charlie Brown saying, isn't there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about, to Linus saying, sure, Charlie Brown. And he tells him from the Gospel of Luke what Christmas is all about. Where are you on that scale? Are you feeling like it is so commercialized, it is so busy, I've lost sight of what's really going on at Christmas? Or, man, I've got it and it's right here and I want to tell other people about it. So, where are you on those two different scales? And then the question that I want us to look at is how do we move from here? to there, from the grumpy Grinch to the joyful Grinch, from Charlie Brown to Linus, how can we move from here to there? Because my guess is that most of us would not put ourselves exactly where we want to be. We may be far over here. We may be somewhere in the middle, but I think we've all got room to move over to the right a little bit closer to Linus and a little bit closer to the happy Grinch. And so I want to take a look at a passage from the Bible that I think will be helpful to us. And that's from Matthew chapter two. And, uh, the video that we just saw kind of went through it a little bit, but I want to go through it in a little bit more detail. Matthew chapter two, starting at verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the East to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now, we don't know a lot about the Magi. Matthew says that they came from the east. Some people think that that means that they came from Persia, maybe Iran, Iraq, kind of that area of the east. We don't actually know a lot about them. Uh, Some people think that they were kings. That's very possible. They were certainly wise men. They were certainly very religious. They may have been religious leaders back in their home country. Again, we don't know a lot of details, but the key thing that we do know is they weren't Jews. They're foreigners. They're Gentiles. And they have come from probably hundreds of miles away, traveled probably for several months looking for the king of the Jews. So these foreigners are coming to worship the king of the Jews. And this sets up what's about to happen in the rest of the story. So when they arrive, when King Herod hears this in verse 3, he's disturbed... And all Jerusalem with him. That's kind of an understatement when it says that Herod's disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. This guy, Herod, King Herod the Great, was not a really popular ruler uh, over Israel at this point. He had been appointed by Rome. He's not a Jew, either ethnically or religiously. He had been appointed by the occupying power, Rome, to be king over the Jewish nation. And so people didn't like him because he was obviously allied with their occupying power but to make that even worse Herod w- was a very paranoid king he's always thinking that people are trying to you know kill him assassinate him take over his throne and so he had already killed get this he had killed his brother-in-law his mother-in-law his wife and two of his sons soon after these things occurred Herod was going to kill a uh, another one, his third son, and he had written into his will that when he died, they were to kill several others of his family so that the whole nation would be mourning as they went to his funeral. Nice guy. So you can tell when Herod's disturbed, everybody's disturbed because when Herod's disturbs, he- heads roll, literally speaking. And so... When he hears that the king of the Jews had been born, he's getting a little bit worried because, you see, the Roman, the Roman Senate had given him the title king of the Jews, but he knew that he was not, in fact, the real king of the Jews. So when he hears that the real king of the Jews has been born, he's getting a little bit nervous. So, verse 4, he calls together all the people's chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. Notice what's going on here. The king of the Jews has no clue where the Jewish Messiah is supposed to be born. Verse 5, In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod calls together... The, the chief priests and the other religious leaders, he's getting all of the Jewish religious leaders together. He says, where's the Messiah going to be born? They say in Bethlehem. And we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we looked at some of the details of that. But what's interesting here is Herod doesn't know. He's, supposed to, he's the king of the Jews. He has no clue where the Messiah is going to be born. The religious leaders know exactly where he's going to be born, and it's about six miles away from where they are. If you're a religious leader and you've just learned that your Messiah has been born six miles away, don't you think you'd like get on your donkey and start heading over to see what's going on? But the religious leaders, for whatever reason, seem unmoved by the fact that these guys, foreigners, are coming in and saying, hey, we've heard that your Messiah has been born. And they know it's supposed to be in Bethlehem, yet they're not willing to to go the six miles to check it out. But these magi, these wise men, these foreigners, they'll travel hundreds of miles in several months so they can come and worship the king of the Jews. So verse 7, Herod called the magi secretly found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, we know at least most of us who have seen the video, or actually it wasn't in this video, but if you've read the story before, you know what's going to happen because we have the perspective uh, in a sense of the narrator's perspective in this. But the Magi don't know what's about to happen with Herod. So they believe him. They take what he says at face value, and they're going to go, and they're going to search for Jesus, and they plan to come back and report to Herod and tell him when they find Jesus, Which again, we're looking, we're saying, you don't want to do that, Magi. And so we'll watch and we'll see what happens here. So verse 9, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures. They presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I've seen, I don't know, 100 manger scenes or more in my life, and probably two-thirds of them. You've got baby Jesus in the middle and Mary and Joseph on either side and a bunch of shepherds crowding around. You've got the obligatory animals there, and you've also got the magi. You've also got the wise men in the manger scene. Makes for a beautiful scene historically inaccurate the magi were not there when the shepherds were there they were not there when jesus was in the food dish as the kids just told us a few minutes ago they got it right in their in their video the magi didn't come till at least several months maybe a year a year and a half maybe even up to 2 years after Jesus was born. So Jesus was probably a toddler by this point. Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they're still in Bethlehem, but they're living in a house. They're not hanging out in the stable anymore. So the Magi arrive and they bow down, they worship Jesus, they present their gifts to him. Gold, a lot of people think that the gold focused on Jesus' royalty, on the fact that he was a king. The frankincense, focusing on his divinity, the fact that he's God. And myrrh was a spice that was used for embalming. And so it's focusing on the future, the prediction that Jesus was going to die. Now, did the Magi understand this? Probably not. Did they have a full understanding that Jesus was God, that he was going to be the savior of the world? Not necessarily. But they knew enough that they were willing to come and to worship this foreign king. And that's a whole lot more than we can say for Herod or even the Jewish religious leaders. So verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So God says to them at this point, don't go back to Herod because I don't want you to be letting him know what you have just seen and where the Messiah is. So verse 13, when they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you're asking why in the world would God send Jesus back to Egypt? Because Thousands of years earlier, about 1,400 years earlier, God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt. They had been freed from Egypt. Why is he sending him back there? Well, on the surface, one of the the obvious things is it's outside of Herod's domain. He controlled a fairly large area, but he didn't control Egypt. So it was safe for Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt. And that's where it starts, and we'll pick up in a second and see a little bit more of the reason. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, "Out of Egypt, I have called my son." And that's a prophecy from the, uh, from the book of Hosea chapter 11. And I think what's going on here, I think what Matthew was pointing out from this prophecy in Hosea chapter 11 is that 1,400 years before, God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt, and they were to come out and they were to be a light to the nations around them, telling them of the greatness of God, of the freedom that God had provided. And encouraging people to come and worship the God of Israel. And sometimes they did that, but so often they didn't. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, you see this with the Jewish religious leaders. In some sense, they couldn't care less that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. So God sends Jesus down to Egypt, says, I'm calling my son out of Egypt just as I brought Israel out of physical slavery in Egypt. I'm bringing Jesus out of Egypt so that we can be brought to freedom from sin, from death, from discouragement, from all the brokenness in this world. And so ultimately, Jesus does what Israel failed to do, and that is bring that reconciliation to us between us And God. And so that's the fulfillment of that particular prophecy there. Verse 16 Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi and he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he learned with, from the Magi. So he figures Jesus is somewhere getting close to two years old. He probably had a little margin added there just to be sure. He doesn't know exactly where Jesus is, so he says, fine, we're going to do a little genocide. And genocide doesn't just happen in our day. It's something that's really happened all the way down through history. And so scholars think that given the, the population of Bethlehem and a surrounding area, probably up to about 20 young boys were killed in Herod's Paranoid quest to try to wipe out the baby whom he saw as a threat to his throne. And so then, uh, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. He said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, he took the child with his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So what was fulfilled, what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. What's so interesting about what has happened, if you've been following along throughout Advent as we've been going through, Joseph and Mary, when they first heard that Mary was going to be pregnant with Jesus... We're up in Nazareth. God sends an angel, I'm sorry, God sends a census, brings him down to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born exactly where he had been prophesied to be born, thus proving that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Herod arises on the scene, tries to kill Jesus. God sends an angel and says, Head over to Egypt so that Jesus will be safe there, and so that I can call him out of Egypt and fulfill yet another prophecy. Herod dies. Angel comes, says, head back to Israel. They find out that Herod's son's reigning in his place. They're a little worried about that, and the angel says, go back to Nazareth. So they've come all the way full circle, started in Nazareth, went to Bethlehem, Egypt, and all the way back to Nazareth. God, in an amazing way, is working sovereignly to have happen exactly what he wants to happen. And he'll use a Roman census and a Roman puppet to accomplish his purpose. I think it's just amazing that he does that. And so as I I was uh, thinking about this passage over the past couple of weeks, I saw a number of different observations that I want to just share with you for, for just a few more minutes here. First of all, there are at least four prophecies That are explicitly fulfilled in this passage. The prophecy about uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. The prophecy about Jesus coming out of Egypt from Hosea chapter 11.1. One. There was a prophecy in Jeremiah 31 about the massacre of the children. So even that was predicted ahead of time. And then there was also a prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus coming out of Nazareth. So God worked through four different prophecies to show us his sovereignty his control his power in working in jesus life there and then there were five different angels that appeared this is pretty cool too the star it's, it's it's interesting we're working on uh, we're, we're we're celebrating the angel's candle today and i love the way that they showed the star that the kids showed the star in that video i think as i've been doing some studying on this that it's really likely that the star was not so much an astronomical star as it was an angel, because in the Bible, from time to time, angels are referred to as stars. So it's probable that this angel that led the magi, that led the wise men... Was I'm sorry, that the star that led them was actually an angel. So there's one angel there. Then the Magi are warned by another angel in a dream that they're uh, not supposed to go back to Herod. Joseph is told by an angel that he's to go down to Egypt. He's told by another angel that he's to to, to go back to Israel. And then yet again, an angel appears to him and says, head up to Nazareth. So you've got four prophecies, you've got five angels, and you've got a ton of irony going on in this passage. Watch this. The so-called king of the Jews, this is Herod. He's the one with the title king of the Jews. He has no clue where the Jewish Messiah is going to be born. And when he finds out, he doesn't want to go worship him. He doesn't celebrate as the real king of the Jews would. He wants to try to kill him. By contrast, the foreign magi, right, who should care less in some sense about what's going on in the nation of Israel, they're willing to travel hundreds of miles so that they can worship the king of the Jews, and they're not even Jews. And then the Jewish religious leaders, who of all people ought to be excited, they know exactly where the Messiah is going to be born, and they couldn't care less. They couldn't be bothered to go six miles to go and find out was the Messiah really born there? So the contrast between Herod and the religious leaders on the one end, and the foreign magi on the other hand, the irony there that the people who should have been worshiping Jesus weren't, and the people who you wouldn't expect to worship Jesus were. And then the flight to Egypt, that looks like a problem, right? If, if you're reading through the narrative for the first time, when they have to go to Egypt, that looks like a problem, but God uses that quote unquote problem in order to accomplish his purposes, then you've got Herod, who's the again the political king of the Jews. when you 're reading through the story, it looks like this guy is completely in control, and Jesus, this little vulnerable little baby he's in incredible danger because he 's just got these inexperienced parents who are taking care of him. but what we don't see. In, in, in a sense, in a literal way, is the sovereign God, the real king of the universe, who's behind the scenes making sure that exactly what he wants to happen happens throughout the story. He is sovereignly controlling and sovereignly overseeing to make sure that not only is Jesus safe, but that exactly what he wants to happen is going to happen. And as I'm reading through this again this past week, praying through it, I'm amazed over and over and over again at the kind of God whom we have, who loves us enough, who cares about us enough, and who is capable enough to accomplish exactly what he wants to do in order to provide the reconciliation between us and himself that we so desperately need and we're completely incapable of providing on our own. And as I was reading through this and praying through it, I'm just amazed to see how wonderfully God has worked in this. And so then I asked myself the question, how how should we respond when we see these things? How do we move from the grumpy Grinch to the joyful Grinch, from the depressed and discouraged Charlie Brown to the joyful and happy and, and worshipful Linus. And as I'm looking at this story, I see three possible responses. First one is the, the response of, of Herod. We oppose Christmas, right? I don't want Christmas to come and I'm gonna do everything possible I can to stop it. My guess is there's probably nobody who's here today who's at that exact extreme extreme saying, I want to kill Christmas, I want to kill Jesus. You're probably not here if that's where you are. But there are an awful lot of people in our world for whom Christmas is not an encouraging time of the year. It's a discouraging time of the year. It's the reminder of past hurts, of broken families. It's Today uh, is, is the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. And the darkness can be incredibly depressing for some people. So while we may not hate Jesus the way that Herod did, there are an awful lot of people who are just discouraged and just wish, I just wish Christmas could be over. Because it's a reminder of the pain and the brokenness of living in this fallen world. And, And honestly, it's not a joyful time for many people. So how do we move away from that? Second response, really on the other end of the spectrum, is the response of the Magi. These guys traveled for hundreds of miles and a few months to see Jesus because they were so excited to worship the king of the Jews. That's where we know we ought to want to be. And sometimes we don't even want to be there, but we know we ought to want to be there. So how do we move from here to there? And then there's other of us, probably the majority of us, are somewhere in the middle. You know, it's, we know Christmas is a good thing. We're, sometimes we're excited about it, but other times the, the commercialization, the busyness, all the activity, we're just tired you know, we're just tired and worn out. We don't have the energy to focus on this. Or we're so familiar with it, you grew up with it, that you're like, yeah, I could have told you that Magi story. And in fact, Clay, you missed this little detail over here on this thing. How come you didn't mention that? You know the story as well as I do. And so it's kind of grown stale to us. So wherever you are, how do we move closer and closer to the, to the position of the Magi who were so excited that they just had to travel hundreds of miles to worship Jesus. I think for me, what I've done and what I want to encourage you guys to do is just first stop and focus. Stop what you're doing and focus. Yesterday, I was reading through uh, Matthew chapter 2. Read it through again this morning as I was praying through it this morning. But yesterday, a really interesting thing happened to me as I was reading it through. Three times three times I found my mind wandering. Two of those times it's wandering to how am I going to explain this, you know, to to you guys uh, this weekend. But another time it wandered off to something, I don't know what it was, an email that rang or, or, or whatever it is. I had to keep stopping myself and refocusing my concentration on this familiar story. But as I did, God just really encouraged me and enabled me to worship him more and more and more as I was reading through it. So you just got to take the time to stop and focus. And in order to help you do that, as we've mentioned a number of times this past month, we've got some Advent readings, some daily Advent readings that are available on our website. Go to renchurch.com. right smack in the middle of the page, there's a box that says daily Advent readings. Click on that link, and there's a list of readings, one for each day during the season of Advent. So we've got about four days left before Christmas, four different readings that are left. Use one of those each day. it take about five minutes, 10 minutes to stop, focus, block out everything that's going on, Read through. There's a passage of Scripture in each one. There's a little reflection on each one. A couple of questions that you can use to to ask yourself to help you to focus. And then an example prayer that you can pray if you want. So just take some time and use those Advent readings. The other thing you can do, there are four chapters in in the Bible. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 2, Luke 1, and Luke 2. Those four chapters really focus on on the Christmas story. Four days left, take one chapter each day. So today, you could read Matthew chapter one. Just skip the genealogy, start about two-thirds of the way through with the story of the angel coming. I mean, you can read the genealogy if you want to, but if you're gonna get tired in that, focus where, you know, start where the angel appears to Joseph and, and tells him that it's okay to take Mary to be his wife. And as you do that, read through it, reflect on it, and pray, and ask God to give you a fresh, a renewed perspective on Christmas this year. So whatever you choose to do, let me encourage you to take just five or 10 minutes every day between now and Christmas and stop and focus and prayerfully ask God to work in your heart to move you from wherever you are closer and closer and closer to him and to give you a greater and greater and greater excitement for the privilege that we have of worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save us on Christmas Eve. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you uh, for this passage uh, about the Magi and Herod. Thank you for the example of the Magi who were willing to drop everything and travel for hundreds of miles in several months so that they could come and worship a king who wasn't even the king of their nation and as as those of us who are followers of Christ, I pray that we would take this time during this Christmas season, even if it's just a few minutes a day, to stop what we 're doing, to focus on you, to renew our hearts, and to worship you. and I pray that, as we do, our love for you would grow, and our desire to tell others about the love that you have for us would grow and I pray that you would work in our hearts to change us, to become more and more like yourself so that when others see us, they might see you, and they'd be drawn to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm so glad that you guys came out this morning, and I hope to see you back on Christmas Eve, Wednesday evening. Thanks.